All right. Talking about um, original sin and good works. Um, this is the tail end of chapter eight. Um, and if you need a page number, the interesting thing at the end of chapter eight is that we get into the image of God restored and what that looks like. Um, so that would be like page 204 and following. So as, uh, as we talked about last time, we spent most of the time last time talking about, um, talking about synergism and Pelagianism and Arminianism. Um, the idea of Pelagianism is, um, Pelagianism is that idea that you can do good works to balance out everything. And that is, it's inherently part of your own power to be able to do that. And, and that was condemned fairly early on in, in Christian history. Um, but semi-Pelagianism is, is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, where God gives you a spark of goodness, and he, he washes away your original sin. And then during your life, um, you, you atone for your own actual sin through the sacraments of the church. Um, and that, that distinction of original and actual um, it's it's a little bit a little bit of a false distinction between original sin is actually sin, um, but what we mean is the sin that you're born with versus the sin that you do during your life through what you the the bad that you commit or the good that you omit, what we would call a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Um, and so that idea of semi-Pelagianism in the way it plays out in the Roman Catholic Church is you're baptized. Um, by a priest who is, you know, maintains his indelible character, who uses the right words, and that he is an actually he's actually a priest of the Roman Catholic Church, and then that is how God um, gives you his his spark of goodness, so that you can then make use of the sacraments of the church to atone for your actual sins. Um, in other words, God starts it, and then you do the rest. Arminianism is the reverse of that that you have to make the first move. You have to be the one to invite God into your life. You have to be the one to decide to be, become a Christian or have a, a, a conversion experience um, that is usually, usually predicated on emotion. Um, and then that is, that is the entrance of God's power into your life. And, you know, one example was um, just the way that baptism is used by those who don't believe in infant baptism, like that's a, that's a pretty big clue. If they say we baptize, we baptize people, but we don't baptize infants, well, then that baptism has to start with me as my decision to be baptized, my decision to accept Jesus, and then baptism is simply affirming what I already accepted and believed on my own accord. Questions? Okay. Um, and then synergism is, um, is, I guess, where it, where it kind of creeps in among those who don't officially hold to Arminianism or, or semi-Pelagianism. Uh, synergism is that idea that in some way I have to, it's just a general term to say that in some way I have to contribute and make a change in order to be good enough for God. Um, I have to contribute to my salvation, um, and some usually it's not even not even that that blatant, um, but it's just kind of this this understanding that I have to kick the habit, I have to change my change my ways in order to feel like a good Christian. 
and even that even that term good christian like we we know what it means um you know like grandma was a good christian she was she was at church you know every for every potluck every funeral she was there cleaning she was there for every worship service she sang in the choir and played the organ she was a good christian lady we all understand you know generally what we mean by that but if you just take the the term like then what's the difference between a good christian and a not good christian is somebody's faith less effective or less active if he or she isn't serving in every capacity within the church um no <laughs> not necessarily um because because we I, I, that that's probably the the temptation is that we want we want to have some sort of certainty or we want to see some sort of credit for the you know the suffering that we go through um even if it's the suffering of of showing up for a meeting you know every month at at seven o'clock at night um or the the effort that we put in and in a sense it's not that it is synergism in and of itself but it's definitely it definitely can creep in and i think um you know, one one of the more subtle ways that that kind of creeps in the back door is you know, like that term "good Christian," um, where we can understand it at the at the same time. Um, if somebody somebody's either a Christian or not, right? Uh, anything else on synergism? That that that's a very good example from one of the seven letters of Revelation, where Jesus says to a church, by the way. Uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, if anyone would open the door and let me in, I will come in and eat with him or something like that. And he's obviously, you know, just look at the the three verses, like the one before that verse and the one after, or look at the, the heading in your NIV or your EHV. Um, he's not talking about conversion. <laughs> um, if you have it, if you're reading in a proper context, he's talking to Christians and he's, he's saying, well, you know, put your faith into practice by spending time with your spending time with Jesus. Um, put your faith into practice instead of just being a lukewarm Christian, like the, you know, one of the other seven letters that we talked about. But if you just, um, just have that pluck that verse out of there, it's easy to, to toss in somewhere in the rest of, you know, your, your extended image of how conversion is supposed to work. Well, Jesus says, I'm at the door and knock. And then, then it's time. Well, Jesus is knocking right now. Come on up for the altar call. <laughs> no, context. Jesus doesn't say, like, I'm knocking at the door. Now you open your heart, you, you dead and hostile to God person. <laughs> it's not a conversion text. But yeah, I've, I've heard that one numerous times. The third article, I love it. Um, what do you believe? In the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe that I cannot by my own thinking or choosing believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. Like, it, it sounds, it sounds, it's just beautiful. Like, you hear a congregation of people saying that on Sunday morning. Wow. Yeah, that we truly are here by God's grace from beginning all the way through the end. And anything else? On Pelagianism, Synergism, Arminianism. Then that gets us into original sin and good works. Agree or disagree? What do you think? An unbeliever cannot do good works. Yes, exactly. Um, that when we talk about, 
when you talk about uh, agree or disagree questions, you know, oftentimes it's, um, it's in the details where you try to write this ambiguous question where you have to decide either one or the other. Um, and the point that they're driving at is what it, what's your thinking behind it? Um, like, how do you define a good work? Is it, is it good to change your baby's diaper and to make sure that that child is well-fed and brushes his teeth before he goes to bed? That is a very good thing. And society will, will not uh, treat you kindly if you continually neglect to do that. Um, society recognizes that as a good thing. Um, that, is, that falls under the category of what we call civic righteousness, that it is, it is good or it is righteous um, for the limited time and space of life in this world, um, life in the, the civic sphere, if you will. Um, but when you talk about good works as in things that are done according to God's law, done for the right reason, and that have the, the value in the Christian life of being part of my life of thanksgiving, no, a, an unbeliever can't do that. Um, and even, and Crystal touched on that one, that part as well, even the good things that, an unbelie- that a person does um, apart from faith it, it might be super and fantastic and more than you or I, you know, combined would ever do in a lifetime, you know, provide water for, for, you know, villages around the world, you know, access to clean water, you know, as one example. Um, but if it's not done from faith and if it's not done, you know, also in line with God's word, um, then it uh, is of no spiritual value. And so, no, the unbeliever can't do good works even though they can do things that are outwardly, outwardly good or in line with common sense and the secular, secular realm. How about this next one? Agree or disagree? We all have free will. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, this is, this is one of those. Uh, we'll start with Laura and then Joe. Okay, well, that, that, that gets us into it. Yeah, the, when we talk about the organs of the soul, we basically talk about the logic, emotion, and the will. And, um, and that we all have, we all have a will. Um, as to the extent of how free it is, <laughs> I think that's the, that's the major part of that question here. Yeah, and it's uh, in things subject to reason. I like that, I like that distinction. Um, things subject to reason is just another way of saying, would, would any person with his or her you know, human brain be able to think of a logical way or logical choice? You know, am I going to wear a short sleeve blue shirt today or am I going to wear my sweater? Um, you know, that's subject to reason. I, I have the freedom to choose one or the other. That we <laughs> Give me the stink eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we... It, yeah, and I think that that will play into it in just a minute, because um, when we talk about free will, the only freedom we have is in things that are subject to reason and things that are um, external matters. But spiritually, we have no free will um, apart from faith. That and when we talk about free will and the, the capacity to, to choose to do something and follow through with it as an organ of the soul, um, where we have, you know, your logic and your emotion put together to ex- and are exercised in your volition, your will, um, that is something that only a Christian can do, um, where they have the freedom to choose what is right for the right reasons. I think that's the, that's the specific aspect of freedom that we're talking about here. And that, that freedom 
is um, will always find itself bound by, you know, constrained by, restrained by our, you know, <laughs> the freedom is exercised in the path of, of God's will for us as revealed in his word. Um, and so we don't, we don't say anything about the will of God apart from the word of God. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, when he says, Lord, let this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Um, or we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, when we, when we have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he knows exactly what, what good Friday will entail. And he, he has made his will subject to the father's will in carrying out your salvation and mine. So in that sense, he, he, just like you and I have a free will that is bound by or constrained by, um, God's will for us, God's will as revealed in his word. Um, and I, I, I like the positive way of phrasing it, that, that God's will as revealed in his word is the path of freedom is the path of a free will. Um, and so in the Lord's prayer, when we pray our, you know, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know, what is God's will? Um, as we see in, in his word, well, we've got the 10 commandments as a summary of God's moral law, God's moral will. We've got, you know, his, his earnest desire that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth that all nations would be, would be baptized, um, and instructed. We have, um, God's will that his church would endure through the end of time and that his Christians would work together as members of one body. Um, those are all aspects of, of his will. And so, you know, in that sense, um, our freedom is, is laid out for us in how do we, how do we exercise and make the choices specifically in that are in line with God's will as revealed in his word. And so you, you think of the things that, that God has included in, in his will, you know, like some of the examples I just mentioned, and you've got, um, then, then it's the question, like Christians working together in a congregation, how are, what is it that we want to do first, second, or third, or over the course of a year or multiple years in order to, um, you know, be the stewards of all the blessings that God has given to us in his gospel and also to exercise all the other blessings um, in the service of that will, where a congregation, in a sense, is basically pooling their, their freed will that is no longer bound by sin in the same way that an unbeliever is, but is rather freed to run in the path of God's commands. And that congregation exercises their wills together in service of God's will, which is that all people would be saved. Um, if you want to think of it that way as, as another, another aspect of that. Um, so I would, I would disagree that, I mean, yes, we have, we have free will in, in external matters. You know, do you want to wear shoes or boots today? Do you want to wear, you know, a jacket, a winter coat, even though you're inside of a building, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> or do you want to wear short sleeves? Um, or do you, you know, every, you know, a lot of the choices that you or I make every day are, are just matters of, of a logical human brain exercising its free choice. Do I do choice A or choice B? 
But when it comes to spiritual matters, um, free will is is non-existent among unbelievers, and it is it is there uh, restored in a limited sense among believers, um, where we have the freedom to do the right thing for the right reason. Um, but that that exercising of that free will will always be hampered by the sinful flesh. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, and we, we actually just talked, talked about that in our catechism class. Um, you know, agree or disagree or, you know, true or false. Um, God wants there to be different church bodies in this world. <laughs> well, false. God wants, God wants us to be completely united but true because God doesn't want, you know, those who hold to different beliefs to be worshiping together. And so when we, when we, when we talk about this, um, that's part of the reason why, why every dogmatics or doctrinal text, and this is basically a high school level dogmatics text. Um, it's going to involve some, some little bit of history to a greater or lesser degree. Um, because what you what you'll see is that I guess the first part is there's a complete difference in kind between the Christian church and and everybody outside of the Christian faith, um, where you see you know the Christian truth that anybody who is Christian will agree on are the three ecumenical creeds and that Jesus is the way to heaven. Um, just stated blandly as that, and every Christian will agree. Um, and then you look at the other, like the Hindu, the Hindu belief is that there's just a, a myriad of gods up there. There's thousands upon thousands and, you know, pick and choose the ones you want. Um, and, and then the, the, the other groups, you know, Buddhist or Islam or, you know, demonstrably not Christian groups, um, they'll have some, some other way that is not in line with the three ecumenical creeds. They'll believe that Allah is a complete unit, that he's only one, um, that, he, that there's nothing three about Allah uh, in the Islamic faith. Um, and so a quick glance will say that it's a complete difference in kind between the Christians and everybody else. Um, and then when you get to differences among the Christians, you'll see it's kind of a difference of degree. And that's where you walk into an ELCA church. And then, you know, during your time there, I'm sure with some wonderful people, um, that ELCA church then became a North American Lutheran church, NALC. Um, I know a guy who wrote like a 40 page church history paper on that. And you can email me for the link <laughs> or I'll just send you like the draft that's still on my computer. <laughs> um, and, and then you end up at the Missouri Synod or, and then that doesn't even include the other, the, the non-Catholic, non-Lutheran groups that are still under the umbrella of Protestant. And that's where you start to see it's a difference of degree. And some of, some of the history helps to parse that out, um, where you can come at it from a historical direction or an historical direction to say, well, here's the, here's the tree. And then there was a split at the reformation and then the, the branches split from there, or you can come at it from, um, you know, like the, the discussion of Arminianism versus semi-Pelagianism direction versus, you know, saying that people are, are dead and blind in sin. Um, where you, you hopefully we pick up some of the, the doctrinal terminology as, as a handle to be able to, to get a hand and get a grip on what these, what these churches are teaching. 
to be able to see that the difference among Christians is a difference of degree, um, but it's not, it's not a group of minor differences because all of those differences will get back to that, that central truth of justification, um, which is actually what we're going to be getting into in just a minute here. Um, I think I've got a, I'll see if I can find that image. Um, it's the idea that, that every, that every question that we have, um, doctrinal or a life question in some way or another will connect to the truth of justification. And that is, is Jesus righteousness imputed, you know, counted as mine by grace alone, through faith alone, according to scripture alone. Um, and some of those terminologies then helps us help us to see, well, um, you know, maybe the Presbyterians say it's not just grace alone or faith alone, it's faith plus, faith plus works. Um, or the Roman Catholics would say, well, it's not just scripture alone, it's scripture plus holy tradition. Um, and, and I think that's, that at least helps to parse out some of the understanding of the degrees of difference, I think, between the two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that like all the, the seven, seven churches of the seven letters in Revelation, um, they, all had, they all had their particular issues. And, and I say that, you know, you can, you can look at it through the lens of justification and, and some of these, you know, term, terms or some of the history as like a, getting a grip on it. Or the other way to look at it is through the lens of law and gospel. Um, that are we, are we adding something to the gospel so that the gospel isn't just Jesus work for us, but it's, um, Jesus enabling us to do good works for him. Um, if that, that's a mixing of law and gospel, um, or is, or is the law being watered down so that, well, the Bible calls that a sin, but the Bible's outdated when it talks that way. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's kind of an easier, easier metric to say, well, you know, looking at what some of these church bodies teach, you can see where the difference is and, and the fallacy, um, and I'm sure we've tried at one time or another, the fallacy is to think that we can then build church fellowship with other church bodies by starting with what we have in common, <laughs> I heard, heard that a lot back in Ottawa and, uh, it still, it still floats around, um, because people are, they want to see the good in their fellow Christians. And you can, you can say, yes, the, the Christians at that church, that church, that church, that church, um, they're, they're Christians. And I rejoice that I'll see them in heaven, but right now their confession of faith is not in line with what the Bible says. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to think ill of them. Um, you know, if they want to talk about Bible. I'll talk about the Bible with them all day. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, getting into this, this next section, um, about the image of God, I think this will be, this will be helpful as well. Um, we're going to start with second Corinthians five 21. If you have a Bible and actually we'll look at, uh, verses 19 and 20 and 21. Uh, reads like this, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, inasmuch as God is making an appeal through us. We urge you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, God made him who, had no sin, who did not know sin to become sin for us 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cool thing thing um, about verse 20, verse 19 in particular is that Paul defines each of his terms in verse 19, um, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that, that term reconciling. Um, he defines in the very next clause after the comma, when he says, not counting their trespasses against them, or in the NIV, not counting men's sins against them, uh, reconciling the world he then defines in that same, that same following clause, the they're not counting their trespasses um, or the NIV not counting men's trespasses against them. Um, and, and so in that verse, verse 19, I think is very important to understand both what do we mean by this reconciling? What do we mean? And then by extension, what do we mean by God's forgiveness? And then also, who is it that is, has been reconciled to God? And that, and understanding that according to the way that Paul defines it in verse 19, will, um, it has to change the way that we think about how do we do ministry. Um, that if, if we say, well, who was, according to verse 19, who has been reconciled to God in Christ? If you look at verse 19, yeah, the, the whole entire world. That, that every person you see is somebody whose bill of sin has been replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. The natural following question then is, well, does that mean they're going to heaven? Well, no. Verse 20, he says, well, be reconciled to God. In other words, that he has localized this reconciliation to... Um, in reconciliation in Jesus to being received only through faith. It's like if you have terminal cancer and somebody's like, well, the hospital has the cure. You just like eat this thing that looks like a little M&M and you'll be completely cured. But if you don't know about it, if you never make it to the hospital, if you never have the medicine, then you, you won't be cured, even though they've got the absolute cure for it. Um, so verse 19 that the entire world has been reconciled to God and, and that this is something that is complete and, and that it is a change in God's attitude. He doesn't say that, that the trespasses have been completely erased, erased, sorry, I can't talk, um, but that he has chosen to not count their sins against them, not count people's trespasses against them. It's an attitude or a change in God's heart um, for the sake of his son, Jesus, where he has willingly chosen to not count people's sins against them, um, rather instead counting Christ's righteousness in their place. And so, the, you know, where that, where that kind of comes into play is um, it, it's part and parcel of that discussion of synergism and um, Arminianism. Arminianism would say, if you believe in Jesus, then your sin is forgiven. Or when you believe in Jesus, then your sin will be forgiven. Um, the way the Bible describes it is your sin is for your sin is <laughs> forgiven in Jesus. Believe it that we don't make somebody's forgiveness contingent on, um, on their belief. The forgiveness is contingent on the work of Jesus. Um, there a unbelief or a lack of belief forfeits that gift. And that will ever and always be the case. Um, but knowing that the gospel, the gospel is the only thing that produces 
faith, you know, if I say, well, Ron, if, if you believe in Jesus or when you believe in Jesus, that's not really a statement of gospel. That's a condition placed on the person. If you believe, when you believe. Um, so then, you know, verse 21 is kind of the, the summary of that entire little discussion. And this is like the first high point of, um, of 2 Corinthians. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's this, this great transfer that Jesus did not know sin. He did not have sin, experience sin, cause sin, wasn't born with sin, but he became sin in our place. So that, you know, our sin is taken away and we would in, in, in place of that sin, we would have the righteousness of God counted as ours. And the word that we have there, um, and it's, I think it's on page 204 or maybe 205 of your text, is impute. We aren't talking about a change within the person. We're talking about a change in God's attitude toward that person. So it's a change in your status because God has imputed Christ's righteousness to you. He has counted Christ's righteousness as, as yours. Um, and that, and, and in that sense, your righteousness is free and full and completely complete. It's a completely perfect righteousness because it is Christ's righteousness counted as yours. It doesn't depend on a, on your, a change in your life. It doesn't depend on kicking the habit or however you phrase it. Um, it depends solely upon the righteousness that has been imputed to you. That will get into the restoration of the image of God, Laura, and then Ron. Yeah, the the image of the the atonement cover, I think, is is a beautiful image. Um, so the atonement cover is the the cover to the Ark of the Covenant, and it's got the angel wings over the top. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was um, the the Ten Commandments, was Aaron's staff, was a jar of manna, was the the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so once a year, they would take the, the blood of a sacrifice in there and sprinkle it on top of the atonement cover. And symbolically, above the atonement cover is where, is where God resided, where God appeared. Um, that was in the, the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place in the temple. So then symbolically, as God looks down at uh, the contents of the ark, including the, the broken pieces of the Ten Commandments, as well as the Ten Commandments that are still uh, lodging their accusation against people, um, his view of the broken Ten Commandments is blotted out by, by the blood of the Lamb. And the, the, uh, the concept of atonement um, means to, to set at one, and, and I, that would be a straight-up synonym for that word reconcile. Um, you can, you know, there's, there's a number of terms, and you can slice and dice this almost as, as finely as you wish uh, for, for the whole progression from the, the death of Jesus all the way through the resurrection. And we can talk about um, God imputing his righteousness to you. You can talk about God blotting away our sin as if he's blotting out a fountain, you know, fountain pen stain. Um, you can talk about God setting us at one with him or being recon reconciling himself to us. Um, they're all different ways of saying that there has been this change in God's attitude toward people for the sake of Jesus. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, part of the, part of the cool, the cool thing about this is, 
we've got kind of different categories of terms for terms that God uses. We've got like a courtroom set of terms when we talk about um, righteousness being, you know, a declaration of not guilty. Um, we've got more of a relationship set of terms, which is what we're dealing with here, such as reconcile or being set at one. Um, and and when we talk about um, when we talk about the concept of forgiveness, forgiveness is primarily primarily a relationship um, type of term. And so, you know, what is forgiveness? Um, somebody somebody punches me on the arm you know, as as an as an example. And I, I <laughs> modern culture says, it's okay, don't worry about it. Um, but as a Christian, you know, I say, they say, I, I'm sorry, I, that was wrong of me. And I say, I forgive you. It doesn't take the hurt away. It doesn't make them not punch me. <laughs> you know, the punch already happened. But there's a change in the attitude here that, and that's communicated in the restoration of this relationship that I'm not going to hold this grudge against you for sl slugging me on the arm. And that's, um, that's kind of exactly the way that, that he describes it in verse 19, that, you know, God chose to not count their trespasses against them. Not that the trespasses, you know, in actuality, those are still there. Um, but that God has, God doesn't account them as guilty. If you switch over to a courtroom turn, God, God doesn't count the world as guilty because of their sin, but rather he counts them as not guilty. And he has localized that, that restoration of the relationship. Then we'll flip back to that relationship term. He's localized that restoration of a relationship in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he restores that relationship through um, creating faith, which receives that forgiveness. Or he then imputes to each individual the, the declaration that he made about the world is then you know, taken home to each individual through faith. Well, God declared the world not guilty. God brought me to faith in holy baptism. I know that I am declared not guilty in God's courtroom. And so you know, kind of the fun thing is that, that that flexible language between like courtroom terms and relationship terms um you know there's there's one book that i still have a copy on my shelf i think it talks about like 15 or 20 different categories or subcategories um just trying to parse out different ways that god talks about relationship and um or or a courtroom terminology um or being incorporated into a body um, as ways of talking about our justification, but at its core, that, that your justification is a change in God's attitude where the guilty are still guilty as sin, but God in his grace has chosen to count Jesus as guilty in our best for the sake of his son. All right. The uh, the next verse that we've got from, let's say, Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. Uh, Romans 3, verses 20, 21 through 24 reads like this, But now, completely apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been made known. The law and the prophets testify to it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and over all who believe. In fact, there is no difference because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the part where we, where we stop. Um, so looking at, at that selection, 
what do we see about, um, about our status? Talking about our, our status and our versus our struggle, I guess. Looking at verse 22, what is our status in verse 22? What's that? Yeah. All right. So that we, we, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also, um, even before that, and then again, after that, um, that this righteousness from God, um, is ours through faith, not on the basis of works, um, but on the basis of the, the faith that God has created. Uh, we'll go ahead to Romans chapter four, and this will be the next one. That might be a page flip for you. Verses four and five. Now to a person who works, his pay is not counted as a gift, but as something owed. But to the person who does not work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So we see um, our our actuality when he, when he says the ungodly um but that god justifies the ungodly and credits their faith as righteousness um and so when he talks about god who justifies the ungodly the ungodly are still ungodly um but that he has counted them as not ungodly he has counted them as righteous in his eyes and so, you know, what we're going to be, this leads into the next section where we talk about um, not just original sin, but then actual sin in our lives. But this is a, a nice little bridge, I, I hope, I think, <laughs> where we talk about our status in God's eyes. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, you aren't working, you aren't doing something to gain it. Um, and especially in, um, you know, like Romans three and four, and I guess Romans two, um, the, it's, it's a big setup between faith versus works that, and so we have to see that faith is entirely God's work and it's not, it's not, it can't be our choice, but, uh, going ahead to Romans chapter eight. Yes, uh, verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery so that you are afraid again, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we call out Abba Father. The spirit himself joins our spirit in testifying that we are God's children. So then this new, this new status um, is something that, you know, this is, this is one of those relationship terms um, being called children of God, and that is what we are, that we, we call our God, you know, we can pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, um, <laughs> where, where that gets a little bit of confusing, I guess, to, to finish out kind of that judicial terminology versus like relationship term, terminology, children of God is a straight up relationship terminology, that we are children of God, that is our status, because we have been adopted into God's family. Um, sons of God is usually a judicial term, like with, you know, talking about your inheritance in heaven. Um, like the, the book of Galatians, um, talks about being called sons of God. And, um, and that's, that's muddied a little bit in like some of the newer translations that try to replace, you know, 
sons and daughters of God, which I, I suppose that would be, that would be fine. Um, or children of God. Um, but the idea of the sons of God is that, is that each of us has an inheritance in heaven. Um, and it's not meant to, it's not meant to exclude women in any way. Um, but it is meant to, it is written in a way that communicates in near Eastern, Middle Eastern terminology, that you have this inheritance, that, um, that you are a legal member of God's family with an inheritance. What's that? Yeah, yeah, the adoption of sons. What's that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a good one. So then we'll rewind to Romans chapter seven and um in Romans chapter seven, talking about um you know the struggle that Paul that Paul describes for us here, when he says, For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not keep doing what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Indeed, I know that good does not live in me, that is, in my sinful flesh. The desire to do good is present with me, but I am not able to carry it out. So I fail to do the good I want to do. Instead, the evil I do not want to do, that is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who am doing it, but it is sin living in me. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. I certainly delight in God's law according to my inner self, but I see a different law at work in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin, which is present in my members." What a miserable wretch I am who will rescue me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with that, we see, you know, the, the previous verses from 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 3 and 4 and 8 primarily talked about our status, that we have been adopted into, into God's family. Um, and now Paul talks about, talks about the struggle and what is the, what is the struggle that he encapsulates for us here? Um, <laughs> I love this section in, uh, in Romans seven, especially if they do their best to make it as uh, confusing to read as possible. <laughs> Cause then, you know, just give that one to the vicar and let him work his way through that for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. that the, the sin is always living in me and it's always going to be living in me until the day that I'm not living anymore. <laughs> and, and he's, um, there's a, a scholarly work um, by one of the guys who was one of the editors for the new NIV. Um, his name, last name is Moo, you know, like a cow. <laughs> and, um, and he's got this like, you know, 300 page book, um, talking about who's the I in Romans chapter seven. Um, he calls it the I in the storm. Well, I mean, the, the short answer is this is Paul. This is Paul who, who fully understands his status in God's eyes while also recognizing the reality within himself. Um, and, and so you, you follow that through 
verse 24, what a miserable wretch I am who will rescue me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when he says that, you know, I think that is, that's definitely an allusion to what he had talked about in every chapter leading up to Romans chapter seven, um, that God, you know, despite Paul being the, the ungodly, we have a God who justifies the ungodly as Romans chapter four had, had just read. Um, and that our status in God's eyes is complete and completely righteous judicial term or completely reconciled and forgiven um, relationship term. Um, even though the reality that we experience on a daily basis is still what I want to do isn't what I do. And what I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. Oh, <laughs> right. All right. Any other, so I guess that's, um, and then the last question, any other questions on that? Um, I guess that, that talked or touched on a few different, few different elements of, um, about the restoration of the image of God. We didn't talk about that a whole lot. I think if you look at verse or page 204 in your text, um, there's one nice, a nice way of, of stating it on page 204. And then he had a nice summary at the end of the chapter. Uh, the bottom of page 204, that last, that last paragraph um, starts like this. First of all, the image of God in Adam and Eve was innate. That is, it was an attribute of their nature and something that they had from the moment of their creation. The image of God in the believer is not innate. However, or rather, it is imputed. That is, righteousness and holiness are credited to us and charged to our, our account on account of the grace of God and the work of Christ for our redemption. As noted earlier, holiness and righteousness are absolute terms. Strictly speaking, there's no such thing as partial holiness or an in-process righteousness. Um, and so this holiness and righteousness imputed to us through faith in Christ's own is, is uh, perfect and complete in God's eyes. However you read that. And so when we talk about that, that image of God restored in us, uh, from our perspective, um, it's, it's Romans chapter 7 all day long. <laughs> From our perspective, it's like, you know, what I want to do isn't what I do. And what I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. And this is frustrating. I don't see the, the growth uh, that I want. And I see the bad that is, is still there. Um, but in God's eyes, that restoration of the image is, is complete. Because it's not a change in our, in our personhood, but it's a change in our status in God's eyes. That's, that's kind of the, the core of what, we, what we're going to be getting into in the next chapter as well, when we talk about actual sin. Uh, so this is a change in, in our status, according to, you know, in God's court, if you will, um, even though at the same time, our actual lived experience is not the perfect, perfect righteousness, holiness, image of God that, that God has chosen to see for the sake of his son. So how about that question at the bottom? And this might carry us through to the end. Evaluate a clear grasp of the doctrine of original sin helps me grow in self-awareness and compassion for others. A 
clear a clear grasp of the doctrine of original sin helps me grow in self-awareness and compassion for others i'll give you a minute uh with those seated nearby all right what do you think (laughs) yeah i think i think that's that's definitely one element of it that your awareness of your own sin is um means that you you see that you're in the same boat as the person next to you um and even even if my sin is is different from yours we are both equally guilty in in actuality to have to have like this chapter parse out in in so much detail you know what original sin is both its cause and its effects and its effects within and without and our relationship with god and our standing in god's court um it gives us a, a, a better understanding of what actually is going on inside because that, that sinful nature, uh, sinful flesh knows enough of God's law to have its own opinion of my own goodness and rightness. Um, and, and even, even when I write a sermon, you know, sometimes there's a sermon where like, you know, my, my hint, if you ever are in the place of writing a devotion or something like that, is that if you have a, you have to have like a good, point of the law or else you won't have a good sermon or devotion. Um, but sometimes to accomplish that, I, I think of it as like, like the cartoon character sneaking up behind somebody and bop them on the head with a hammer <laughs> that, that sometimes, sometimes you have to find a way to kind of sneak up on the sinful flesh and, and give it a good wall upon the head. And I think, um, the, the other interesting thing, you know, you read this chapter and, um, if you, if you, you know, read history or, uh, I like the way David put it, you read some spicy history where you hear about, um, you hear about different people at different times and, and you kind of get this sense that that history, if it doesn't repeat itself, at least it rhymes. Um, but this chapter says, you know, every politician will tell me that they're going to fix things. They're going to clean it up and they're going to make it better. And this chapter says, not really. <laughs> it might, it might be a different pile, but it's all going to be the same stuff. Um, and, and so at the same time as, as having compassion, um, compassion for others and awareness of what's going on inside, you see the stark contrast. I keep hitting my microphone. I'm sorry. You see the stark contrast between what we can accomplish in a worldly sense, um, either politics or culture or you name it versus what God has already accomplished and wants to distribute through his church and through his Christians. And it's just like, you know, thank God that, that he's given us this, this congregation, yes, um, that he's made me a member of his body, his church, um, because, you know, everything else is, is not going to be very helpful. That will wrap us up next time we get into chapter nine, a discussion of actual sin and, uh, and the law. We will close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you um, for revealing to us in stark clarity in your word exactly what you have seen. And we thank you most of all for choosing to not see that for the sake of your son. Instead, um, that it was your will that he would suffer in our place, that our sin would be placed upon him and his righteousness imputed to us. 
remind us of the status we have in your eyes as forgiven and reconciled and declared not guilty um, and continue to be with us and encourage us through your word that we may live um, according to your word and that we may do our best to live up to um, all that you have called us to be to the glory of your name we pray amen thank you very much